Game Changers. Welcome to episode 22 of Purpose Potential Podcast. The elephant in the room is that the COVID-19 era has changed the game for us all. For me, having my son at home has been a huge adjustment in terms of how I structure my days and my productivity. And just overall, we're all just emotionally navigating how this situation has changed our lives. But I really took this time to consider what content would be most relevant to you all. And I'm excited to come back with the new series, the Activator Series. 2020 is still your year. I want to impress that upon you first and foremost. I know that some curveballs have been thrown, but I want you guys to be careful not to start confessing things over your life, over yourself, that would cause a disruption to what God is doing. There are some things that God does and even things that God allows that don't always seem like the most positive things in the moment. But the Bible assures us that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. So game changers, whatever situation you may be in now, be encouraged and outlast the season. So this Activator series, really understanding that purpose is recession-proof. You are a solution. You are created to solve a need. And so this time is an opportunity. You have to be sensitive to how God wants to work in you and through you, but he is doing something. And so I charge you guys just to keep your hearts open and your ears open to be able to hear from God and to shift with him as he's shifting you. I wanted to talk a little bit about relationship building in these next few episodes because though I know that this time has been tough for some on employment, me as an entrepreneur, I have still been securing contracts. And when I think about how businesses can still thrive during even tough economic climates, relationships make all the difference. Relationships make the world go round. And so on today's episode, I've invited one of my friends, colleagues, former business coach, Laura E. Knights, to this episode just to share more about how relationship building has helped her to thrive as an entrepreneur over the years. And she is somebody that you need to know. She is an author, speaker, coach, and facilitator with 16 years, more than 16 years of experience creating professional and personal development programs. Her expertise and background is in business, organizational development, adult learning, and as a licensed clinical social worker, it has all uniquely equipped her to teach others how to deal with both the head work and the heart work required to succeed at work and in life. And over the years, Laura's multi-passionate adventures have taken her in so many directions. As a serial entrepreneur, she has worked as a wedding planner, a life coach, as a social worker and a family therapist, as a nonprofit program developer and administrator, and as a small business advisor. And that's just to name a few. And today, she spends her time providing leadership development consulting to organizations as the founder of Knights Consulting LLC, 
which is a leadership development consultancy that helps organizations cultivate more confident and conscious leaders and high-performing teams. And through this work, she has had the honor to develop and facilitate programs that have touched leaders all over the world. She's a teacher and a strategist at heart. Um, she aims to fully fulfill her why and to educate and empower people so that they can uncover their full potential, walk boldly in it, and create their own legacy. Laura looks at life as one big adventure, and she has always had her eyes open for the next leg of the journey. Laura, welcome to Purpose Potential Podcast. How are you? Yay! I'm so happy. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Oh, I cannot wait for us to dig into your story because you are legit the truth. And there are some <laughs> people like you who are just bosses, but so unassuming, just going about your business. But you have always been a wealth of resource and knowledge and definitely an asset in my life. So, so excited just to get into this conversation today to even learn something about your journey that I haven't learned before. So just kind of take us back to the very beginning. I mean, I know what you do now um, these days, but who were you growing up? And was there anything um, about you that's true today that was also true then? So, you know, I talk about and You mentioned in my bio, like always being a teacher and like a trusted advisor. That's yeah. <laughs> always who, who I've been. I remember when I was a teenager, I wanted to get a job. And my father, who was an entrepreneur, he, he was an accountant. He had a um, small tax firm working with small businesses. And he was like, no, you need to focus on school. You need to focus on school. So at the time, I was volunteering for an organization, tutoring kids, like at the library. And it was something that the high school had hooked up with the elementary school. So you would go to the library on Tuesday. I think it was like the Dalton Public Library in Illinois. And you would, you know, they would have a little kids. There was like an after school program. You would tutor them. Well, what started to happen is that my little kids was really making progress. I'm talking about <laughs> third, fourth, fifth grade. So the parents start soliciting me to work with them outside of the limit, like one hour after school. So that was the birth of my first business. So my father would not allow me to get a job because he thought I would not be focused on school. But I said, what if there are people in the neighborhood? Could I tutor the kids? And he didn't really connect that I was starting a business because I was doing this as a volunteer. Mm -hmm. And so that that was my first business. That was my first job. I did that from my sophomore, my sophomore, junior, and senior year. I was able to buy me a car. I had retainer clients. I had like, I mean, like I had invoices. Who had retainer clients Girl. in high school? Girl, I was making like ten dollars an hour then. That was yeah, that was legit. And, and I had some clients that I kept for like two, three years. So. I have always been an entrepreneur. I've always had that spirit. Both my parents had that entrepreneurial vein and they always kind of put that in me that you, you know, you can get a job working for whoever, but you always can, your hands and your mind are always a resource for you. So I think from a young age, multiple income streams was something my parents was, they did. And they was like, well, how are you going to make some money? Even in college, they were always pushing me in that way. So that kind of multi-passionate entrepreneur thing has always been with me, but the core of everything I've always done has had something to do with teaching, advising, kind of connecting people, that kind of thing. Yeah, I love that. And one thing I love most about that first business idea is that even as a young person who, of course, we all just want to make some extra cash, somehow you knew early on that successful businesses are derived from a need. Money. And there was a need that you met and 
you somehow had game-changing business systems even to run it then. So um, just take us a little bit more into that. Were your parents really involved in helping you to structure and craft that business? Or was some of it a bit intuitive in terms of how you built that first entrepreneurial endeavor? Well, I, I think some of it was intuitive. My my parents have never been overly involved in my affairs as a kid. Like, uh-huh. and I think I think I think it depends on the type of kid you have, right? So I was always uh, um, uh, wanting to achieve, wanting to be the first, wanting to be straight A kind of kid, and that's a good thing. But that's something I, we maybe we'll get to later that you have to balance too, because that perfectionism thing is not always a good thing. Mm-hmm. That thing can turn dark at some point. <laughs> yeah. But um, my father ran um, a, a small tax practice out of our home, so there was always small businesses in our home. He had a ba- our, part of our basement set up as his office, and I was his assistant. Mm-hmm. So I would like back then we. We were we weren't doing nothing online. We would type out. I would type out the tax returns on the typewriter. So I think it was not a direct instruction, but it was always watching him. You know, watching how he talked to the customers when they came in, the rapport he built with them. Then I got to know them because they were small businesses. So this was my father worked with these people five, ten years, right? right? So we got to know them. Sometimes they had to bring their kids, and so. Um, I just watched how he operated. And my father was the type that as he was doing his work, he always was talking out loud. Mm-hmm. See, and why you got to do this is, so he, to whoever, I don't know if he was talking to me. <laughs> so I was always very observant in that way. And then even my mom, she worked a job for, you know, she was a, she worked for companies. She worked for the FDIC. That was like her longest running job as a paralegal. But my mom was like an Avon lady for like 20 years. Really? And she had like the scaffolding under her. She had the representatives under her. She would get the award. So that was like her side hustle. So even packing up the orders, um, when we would go to the little restaurant where my parents ate breakfast, breakfast all the time, you know, how you were cultivating your clients, um, <laughs> bringing them little girl, this is the new nail polish. And, you know, just marketing, marketing is what they were doing. We would make flyers. We would drop them off. We would, my mother would be like, put this necklace on. Cause when Hannah, the, um, the waiter, her favorite waitress saw it, she knew Hannah was going to ask about that. (laughs) So, you know, it was just, I don't think it was any, any explicit sit down and let me teach you entrepreneurship or let me teach you about systems, but it was just observing them and watching them and how they operated and how they had people that were their clients for 20 years, 10 years, that that type of longevity um, and the word of mouth business that came as a result was how they were engaging with these people and helping them to solve the problems they were coming to them for. I love that so much. You touched on so many key things. Um, just first, the power of just exposure. And you don't have to formally sit in a classroom to glean from people Absolutely. who are doing things um, that, of course, can help to take you to the next level. But also just the difference between how business was done in Little Black Book Days versus mm-hmm. how business is done in this growing online space. You mentioned the idea of relational business, word of mouth, you know, keeping your clients coming back to you. And I'm interested to know, since that's how you came up, how has it been adapting as a business owner in the late 2010s and into 2020? Well, I think part of that, the seeing the legacy of my parents, that relational business has always been my favorite. 
And I think it's a positive, I've experienced some positive and some negatives with that. And you have to, you just have to be mindful of that. You always have to be on the cutting edge. I'll talk about some of the positives. So for instance, with both of my parents, everywhere that they went, their business went with them. And it wasn't the sleazy, you know, used car salesman, <laughs> baddest, baddest, baddest that we sometimes feel on social media, right? People just post baddest, baddest, baddest. Um, but it was like the people he went to for his dry cleaning was his customers. Um, a lot of my friends at school, because my parents were very engaged uh, in volunteering in school, you sitting at the basketball games or at the choir um, recital, you talking to the parents. So I would see my friends coming to my house because their parents were small business owners that my dad picked up at the school basketball game, right? <laughs> Love it. And so, so it was just this where you went, you sharing, one, being an authentic person, so people connecting to you as an individual, but then being able to have dialogue to share what you do, that that's how they did business, just everywhere they went, the restaurants we frequented, the church, that's where their clients were. So that's something that I've tried to cultivate. And, you know, I recently, about two years ago, relocated to the Atlanta area from Chicago. So in Chicago, that was my primary way of doing business. I was online, I was doing all of that, but it was in the community, in the networks and the relationships. But when I moved here to Atlanta and I didn't have that network, my business really suffered, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a balance, right? Um, there are some folks that if the internet shut down today, or we've been having no, we've had those little moments throughout the years where like Facebook wasn't working, and then you see people do all the posts, well, what if Facebook goes down? How are you going to do business? That we have to have social media. That's the world that we're in now. But there's something about this relational on the ground um, kind of presence that you also need to be successful as a business. And it's, it's a challenge for some people to balance them both. I would preferably not like to use social media for business. <laughs> it's not my favorite thing, but that's the world we live in. So you have to learn to adapt and kind of uh, have a foot in both worlds. So I love that. And I definitely want to tackle that relational business strategies a little bit more toward the end, but I don't want people to lose the fullness of your professional journey. So I want to run it back. So in high school, you started your first business. In college, you studied business administration and you also got a certificate in nonprofit management. So were you still running your business into college or how did you evolve professionally into that? Yeah, so I had kind of ceased the tutoring business when I went to undergrad, and I went to undergrad at Washington University in St. Louis, and so I was in the business school, and one of the projects that I would participate in is that it was consulting then. We didn't call it that. We just called it volunteering, but business school students would um, volunteer with small nonprofits in the area and try to help them consult on strategy and things like that. And we could use some of it for business uh, credit for classes, but I became really passionate and I had always volunteered, but I became really passionate now being able to see a different perspective from the business side of nonprofits. Um, so it was me and one other guy who actually went into politics that we petitioned because for those, it was a graduate certificate. You were supposed to already have your undergraduate degree. Okay. So we had to petition the university and it was like a big thing. Like we made it like, <laughs> you know, this is discrimination and da, 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 da. And they, I think they just retired of us and they let these two little undergrad, it was me wow. and his name was Ben. 
um, do these courses. So we were in these graduate certificate courses with professionals that were already working in nonprofit management. Here we were, these two undergraduate kids, but we were still, we were doing a lot of work in nonprofits. So when I graduated in undergrad, I was able to graduate with that certificate, which basically was my last year of my undergraduate um, degree. Yep. So my initial focus for undergrad was to go into business in accounting, finance in particular, because my daddy, right? Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, I'm going to take over my father's business. My father had gotten ill. He had to retire early. And so the business was still there, but nothing much was going with it because he just was not healthy enough to run it. So I thought, I'll take over the business. But I hated finance and I hated accounting. I even had um, done some work interning at the Chicago Board of Options Exchange in Chicago for two years. I did that trying to push myself into this finance route, but it just wasn't my jam. I just, I didn't care for it. I wasn't passionate about it. And then a mentor in the business school said, you really love the people side of things. Have you thought about organizational development? Have you thought about human resources management? And that's how I pivoted while I was in school and end up my first professional job being in human resources management. Um, at a Fortune 100 company in St. Louis. Wow. And I was doing a lot of the psychological testing, you know, uh, for a lot of sales jobs, there are behavioral analysis that they have people take because they want to see how you think, how you would um, kind of attack a certain type of problem or a certain type of client. So I would administer those um, analysis for people applying for sales jobs. And then, so I was like the first and I would weed out people who didn't meet our criteria. Then it would pass up to the higher up people who then would go into the formal interview process. So I started in HR like that and really kind of, it was a, a, a family owned business that had been purchased by a larger. So it still had that family run feel, but it was a real corporation, Fortune 100 corporation. So I learned a lot there about the people management of business. Um, how do we talent acquisition? How do we develop people? And that was my first real introduction into organizational development, HR. So did that in St. Louis. When I came back to Chicago, I actually accepted a job. So I didn't really corporate, although I liked the work, the feel of it. I did corporate for a little bit. It, I just, it just wasn't, I don't know, maybe I didn't have the right company. I don't know. It wasn't jabbing for me. Okay. Um, so someone who I had like a mentor that I had worked with before, she was running a nonprofit in Chicago It's no longer, it's shuttered now, but it was called urban solutions. And they got this grant that's still around today that the state gives called the 21st century learning um, communities. Mm -hmm. And so this grant, she was like the, the David that got it out of all these Goliaths. So the people getting this grant, this was like a quarter million dollars and up was University of Chicago, you know, heavy hitters, University of Illinois. And here she was this small, like three staff nonprofit that also got the grant. So since she had some money, she asked me to come and work for her. Um, and to bring my business acumen and my people development acumen because she had to hire people now that she had this huge grant. And it was a five-year grant. Um, so I went and worked there. And basically what we were doing was leadership development for youth and college preparation for youth. So we were in Inglewood. We were at Robeson wow. High School. We were at Dyer High School. All these high schools were even at that time, people would be like, oh, you work there? Do you wear bulletproof vests? And, you know, just all this <laughs> kind of stuff. But I, I work with some amazing young people, some of which I'm still connected with today. And that was ooh, over 10, 15 years ago. 
Um, so we, we were preparing young people who were often the first in their, um, the first in their families to go to school for not only leadership, confidence, self-concept, but college uh, readiness, job readiness, because they had to work. They were students that had to work while they were in school. So I did that and I did program development. I did staffing, all administration uh, kind of work. Sometimes I had to teach, you know, with non small nonprofits, you had to do what you got to do. I'm interested to know how many years span was that between when you graduated from college and then when you were now at this nonprofit working? Yes. So I worked full time my senior year in undergrad in HR. So in that corporation, I worked full time that year of school. And then I moved back to Chicago and about and then I took this job at the nonprofit. So I had been doing this work in the HR field while I was still in school. So I was working um, and my colleagues were like grown folks with families and Uh stuff. So I was working with these folks, getting, doing the HR analysis and all of that when I was still a senior in undergrad and, and had a full-time work schedule, full-time money and a little apartment and everything. So I, was, I thought I was grown a long time ago. Look, you, you have to hook up <laughs> a lot of people with not coming out of college that set. Yeah, but, um, and, and those folks offered it. me a job, but I didn't want to stay in St. Louis because I was in love here with somebody in Chicago that I ended up marrying. <laughs> Uh, yep, we need so to talk I, about that too. I was trying to get back to Bay and do what I wanted to do. Yeah. So I came back here and I accepted that job with the, the nonprofit. So I'm like a year out of uh, undergrad and I'm um, associate program director at this nonprofit. Wow. And so, doing, yeah. You had someone come up to you in college when you were making a career decision and say, hey, have you ever considered, you know, this nonprofit work? What has been the role of just people identifying your potential or mentors, uh, people pulling you into spaces? Um, What has been the true significance of that in your journey and helping you to find your place? Yeah, that that has been everything for me. To be quite honest, every job outside of being an entrepreneur that I have ever had, literally, has been through a connection, through a mentor, through an old colleague who's now somewhere else and like, hey, I got the perfect person. You need this person. Um, All of that through high school. I still talk to my mentors from high school. I still talk to um, my mentors from undergrad, one of which who was instrumental in my life, Dean McLeod, has since passed on. But I remember one time being an undergrad and I, I was like the valedictorian in high school. So I was used to high achieving. And then I went to this college where everybody was the valedictorian, right? So you are not the smart girl anymore. You just regular here, right? <laughs> And I remember like after my first full year and I was a bit of a perfectionist at that time. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. This was so hard. My grades were good, but I had never had to work that hard before. I'm like, this is so hard. And I went and talked to my mentor who was a dean at that time. He was over a scholarship I had. And I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to go home. I don't think this is right for me. And girl, he got me together in that office. So he's like, you're not going to go home. What you're going to do is you're going to get a tutor. We're going to call your mama when you're feeling down. You go, you know, like he basically gave me a whole self-care plan. But he said, if I ever hear you talking about you not cut out for this, it will be a problem. Girl, I was scared. I left out of there like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm going, <laughs> I'm going to register for my classes right now. 
So I've had people like that at every, every, every stage of my um, professional career. Even when I was doing the HR still in my senior year, they offered me a job and it was the person who was my manager. That's like, this job hasn't even come out yet, but if you want it, I'm going to fight for you. So I always had those people that saw something in me and, and push their influence forward to intervene on my behalf. And I still had to show up and show out when I got in there, but I've always had that. So I've always tried to look for opportunities to do the same. So my journey is so similar to that. And, you know, I think about the number of jobs that I applied for and I did a whole lot of applying for jobs at one juncture and got none of them. But all the jobs that I've had have really either been somebody offering me an opportunity, as you said, like, hey, do you want to come work for me? Do you want to come do this? And I'm talking about corporate jobs, retail jobs, just opportunities, period. Um, Or me identifying that there was a gap in creating an opportunity for myself. But I think that when you talk about just this relational way of navigating your professional career, in addition to a relational way of doing business, there are some qualities that you need to be showing forth or exemplifying to even be on somebody's radar that when there's an opportunity that they want to pull you up. So what do you feel like somebody needs to have um, working for them or how do they need to show up? So that when opportunities come, that people think of them and help to pull them up. Yeah, part of it, three things that just popped up in my head immediately was initiative, um, being prepared and knowing your stuff. Like you are studying your craft before the opportunity comes for you. Um, And then the other thing is being coachable. That is so important. Uh, Even when I work with, in my work now, I work with so many leaders and executives. And one of the things they look for and people to pull up and promote is individuals that are going to keep them informed. So they don't have to find you to get an update on things. You are, um, before there's a fire, you have already briefed them. So it's making them look good. It's making them look prepared. So I would definitely say that coachability, if you can, if no one can teach you anything, if anytime someone tries to offer you constructive criticism and you're like, but, but what I was doing, but no, this was written. Nah, you need to just take that. You need to just take that. Even if you disagree with it there, you have to show yourself to be coachable. Nobody wants to put their neck out for a know-it-all. You also have to show yourself to be collaborative. Mm-hmm. So people want someone well, before collaborative, and this is kind of um, petty, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> you ahead. have to be polished. Yeah. Look, I have, when I was working as an executive and I had people under me, I had people who had the skill, but because I could not be confident in sending them into a meeting with a high level of executives on my behalf, because how they was going to show up, uh, you know, th- just little words that they might let slip out. For that alone, I could not risk it, although I knew you was competent to do the job. So you got to be polished in your appearance, how you showing up, in your language, in your decorum. There is a time, sometime to, to push. There is a time to hold back. So you got to have some judgment. Judgment, that's the word. You got to have some judgment. Initiative, right? You need to be, if there's nothing for you to do, you need to find an opportunity and then present it as an asset and present it as value, coachable and prepared. I think 
you know, a lot of times when I've gotten new opportunities, it's because there's been glimpse of something I've been doing or an initiative that I brought that was uh, in line with something they wanted to do. Even I didn't even know, you know, that this opportunity was coming up, but something that I was doing or questions I was asking or um, was in, in some way made them think, oh, wow, you know, she would be good for this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So not being fearful to speak up being able to have some self-advocacy as well. A quick a little story on that. There was a lady I was coaching, uh, um, me a manager who had aspirations to move up to higher level um, executive in her organization. So we're coaching in, uh, from a more professional development standpoint. And there was an opportunity that she had been talking about that came available. And she's like, I know this opportunity is for me. So in our coaching session, we were talking about how she can position herself to talk about certain projects she's doing and to update her resume and be prepared for the interview, doing all of this. Well, she comes to the session one day and she's like in tears in our session. I'm like, what's up? She's like, they gave the job to someone else and did not even offer me an opportunity to apply for it. So her action item from the coaching session was to follow up with her manager to have some dialogue of, if nothing else, give feedback. Why wasn't I considered? Mm-hmm. And she went to the manager, had this conversation. She even got teary in the meeting with the manager. I told her, don't do the tears to the manager, but she got teary in the meeting. <laughs> and the manager said, I didn't know you were interested. Wow. Literally, like you you would have been great in this role. I didn't, you weren't even on my radar because I just didn't even think you were interested. So I'm thinking all the time we had been preparing for this in the coaching that she had made her interest known. She had not. So she prepared the interview. She got her resume ready, but never had did any advocacy on her part to say, hey, I'm interested in this. Hey, can I be considered for that? What are the, you know, what are the eligibility for that? She had never even asked a question. And I was even shocked about that as her coach. So there's a piece about having some self-advocacy. You can't be timid in this game. You Putting got yourself to, in the way of the Yes, child, you got to speak up. Now, some things are going to come to you because people see you, but some things you're going to have to say, I'm interested in this. I would like a chance. You know, what can I do to show, you know, that I might be a candidate for this? And people miss that sometimes. So, so how much is too much in that? So there's something that you're interested in and you put yourself out there, you know, don't take no for an answer. That, that's something mm-hmm. that we hear flying around. Is there a time when you do take no for an answer? When do you know when to lean in and when to pull back? Yeah, I think you, you got to be socially aware a little bit. Some of this depends on the culture of the organization that you're operating in or if you're an entrepreneur um, and you're trying to get a contract or something. It's sometimes built depends on the report and trust. So it may be about, okay, let me be a direct, let me say a, di- a direct verbal um, indicator that I am interested in this thing. But then what is the follow-up you can do that's not always just, hey, I'm interested in this. Hey, I'm interested in this. Can you build a rapport? Can you start to build a relationship? Can you show yourself trustworthy? Can you start to take initiative on certain projects? I do think there still needs to be intervals of direct follow-up about a particular Mm -hmm. task, but you also are um, applying for the position in your presence a lot of the times too. So how can you show yourself as worthy for the response 
uh, or worthy for the opportunity in your actions and how you carry yourself and the ways you're collaborating on a team at the job. If you think about from entrepreneurship, it's about what kind of value are you providing? So I might reach out to you or we may have had a conversation, a real prospecting conversation, and you're not ready for the sale now. Are there systems in place that I have that I can follow up with you to add value? So things I do, for instance, in the work I'm doing now, my clients are other companies. If I've had a talk with a, usually I'm talking to an executive, someone who has a decision-making power about bringing a leadership program into their organization. And maybe now is not the time either because the company is focused on something else. Maybe it's a budget cycle or something like that. In that prospecting conversation, I am seeding need from them. So what are pain points that they're dealing with? You right are now? so good at that. <laughs> right? So if, if you tell me, Laura, now's not a good time, but let's say quarter three, we're going to revisit it. I'm not going to wait to quarter three to follow up with you. What I'll do organically is if, say, you were having a problem with, you know, new managers getting acclimated. If I see an article or some thought leadership on that, I'll send it to you. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, Sandy, I just read this article and thought of you. You mentioned this in our talk. Hope this is helpful. Just things to keep yourself top of mind. Yes. And then when you follow back up, at, you know, go up, up coming to the third quarter about that real sales opportunity again, it won't be that the last time they talk with you for three months. Same thing you could apply if you're working in an organization. How can you add value in between the hard eggs? That's so good. Add value. Um, When it comes to creating opportunities, I think that's the real key thing. Sometimes when people are reaching out for something, whether it be for sponsorship or anything, people tend to have like one-sided asks. And it's just like, oh, can you come sponsor my event? Oh, can you give me this money? Oh, and it's like, why? Like, like what, what exactly, what motivator, what driver does that person have to do that? Instead, you come in again by identifying the, you know, need, Mm -hmm. as as you mentioned, and, you know, positioning yourself to be a solution and letting that pave the way. I think that is a huge key to just like the relational, relational business and relational career growth. Yeah. And I mean, you're building your credibility as an expert authority too, because if let's say it's three months to when these people are going to be ready for the leadership program, but I keep sending you little usable, practical, uh, practical, actionable content that you can start to implement on your own. In 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 your head, you're already associating Laura with the lady that knows about leadership, right? You're already associating that. So when it comes to the time when you're ready to spend money on your leadership program, I will be at least a candidate, if not the shoe in. One thing that I have loved about your professional journey is that you are an entrepreneur who has always done well working in corporate spaces, but in an independent capacity. So I don't know if it was the next job after the nonprofit you were working with, but I remember a time when you were working with the university Mm -hmm. and you were building out programs and curriculum for them. And I think that that's game changing because a lot of entrepreneurs don't know how to package and position themselves for those larger contracts and you you you're operating essentially independently but you're just on another scale Mm -hmm. of business so can we talk about the transition there and really what that experience was like for you and how entrepreneurs that want to go after the bigger dollars can Mm -hmm. make themselves attractive to these more established companies universities corporations yeah so 
part of it is finding an end. So real quick, the journey to there. So I did the work with the nonprofit from that work and working with those individuals. I saw there was a disconnect in our communities, right? We're preparing these kids for college, but their families are still struggling on a number of different ways, addiction, mental health, all this kind of stuff. So that's what made me go back and become a social worker and a family therapist, right? <laughs> because I felt like we're, we're creating all of these systems and structures to help these kids get ahead, but there's some core issues we're not really dealing with. And I became really fascinated with that. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with the mental, emotional, the trauma related, the, you know, institutional poverty legacies and all this kind of stuff. So I became a social worker, was a family therapist for a little bit, but I always had a hand in that workforce development work because that started with those young people, preparing them for college, preparing them for the workforce. Um, and I always had a hand in workforce development. And so in back to relationships and working in that nonprofit, I often, especially when our founder got sick, she um, went through a very, almost, um, almost like took her out of here illness. Wow. I then became her proxy. So these huge foundations, Field Foundation and all of these foundations in Chicago, I now had to be her face while she was recovering from this illness. So you get in all these places. And again, you're building relationship. I was there for a whole nother job, but you meet people, you stay in touch, you build rapport. You don't just check in when you need something. And then it turns into a place that after I didn't want to do therapy at that time anymore, an opportunity came up with the university that was a marriage of all of the things I had ever done. So it was creating economic empowerment uh, programs for low-income adults in the city of Chicago. So they needed someone that had that kind of social work, nonprofit, social justice aspect. But we're these are million-dollar um, grants that we're running. So you have to have some business acumen because your name is on the line as the what they call in federal terms the principal investigator for the loan. You're the person that if something go wrong, they're gonna come say, "Laura, what happened to this six right. million, seven million dollars?" So you had to have business acumen too. So those that came about as a relationship that really started as a part-time summer job while I was a graduate student, getting my master's, just make a couple of money. They wanted some people to come in and work with this, um, a similar program working with teens who were getting employment skills. And I had ran an organization doing that. So yeah, $20 an hour. I was a graduate student. I didn't have any kids then. <laughs> yeah, I could do that, you know, uh -huh. in the summer before my classes start. But I, so I did that just a part-time thing. The lady who was the director and my supervisor for that um, program, little did I know, she was leaving at the end of the summer to um, go do her PhD at UCLA or something in California. And she said, I have the perfect person for the job. And it was me. Are you serious? It was me. And she reached out to me. I think I had like a semester left of my uh, graduate degree. And she said, you know what you're going to do when you finish your graduate degree yet? I said, oh. Not sure. I'm considering this. I'm considering this. And I had been working um, as a therapist at that time, too. I just wasn't licensed yet. So I had to work under other people. But I've been doing group, you know, social emotional groups for girls and all this kind of stuff. And I said, I'm not sure. I'm thinking if I'm going to go into, you know, being a therapist full time again or I'm going to do this. And she said, well, I have an opportunity for you. So that's how I got into the university. And I was creating these programs building those relationships. And then when I got to the point where I wanted to transition from that, that university is still my client. The people who used to hire me as my client to this day. Are you serious? Yeah, when I, that's who my workshop is for tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> but when I had to step out of that. So I'm just giving you the trajectory. Now, back to your question. What 
uh, how do you get into these organizations as an independent? I initially started getting into corporations as an independent on what we would call um, gateway offerings. Gateway offerings are low uh, commitment offerings that feel a, a short term, usually, that feel uh, immediate need. So I was doing a lot of training, workshops, a lot of speaking focused things. Um, at that time, I was doing everything from, this is before I shifted to mostly working with leaders, but doing things about um, uh, how do you build the soft skills in your team, right? Uh, things like communication, all that kind of stuff. And so organizations have budget for those things. They're professional development opportunities. They're lunch and learns. They're staff retreats. They're those kind of things. So I would get in on those you know, one time, and that was through relationships. So I wasn't marketing fully for that. I had a website up, but most of the jobs I got was through relationships. You would get in, and this is the key, and this is some free business coaching I'm going to give your listeners. All right. This is the key. You have to have built in some upselling opportunity, right? But it has to feel like, and not just feel like, because we want to serve, it has to be still a value-based thing. So here's what I do. If I'm going in for a one-time workshop, the mistake that many entrepreneurs make is that they go in for the workshop, they get paid, it's over with, and then they want to follow up with the people after that to try to get more work. But the customer in their head is saying, the workshop is over. Why are you still contacting me? You got paid. We, did our, we had our exchange. That's it. Mm-hmm. You have to build that into the initial engagement. So I will do the workshop, but I build into my package what I call a debrief session, <laughs> a on. debrief session, which I use the language and I say, this will, you know, you've invested in this workshop for your staff. And we know there's so much research you could pull for this if you wanted us to, to quote a stat that a lot of training or conference type of stuff goes away from people, not because they don't want to use it, they don't have a plan to implement it, and they go back to work and they're busy. And those little booklets and handouts sit in that tray in their desk and they don't return back to them. So I would say I will have a debrief always with the leader to help them, to give them some recommendations for keeping the momentum from this event, for really stretching out the return on your investment. So in that meeting, I will have listened to when I did the session, all them problems and pain points that their staff has been talking about in the context of the workshop. I would give them some real tips on how they can um, help their people with that and move forward and whatever the subject of what we did together. And then I will position myself to be the person that can help them to do that. And that is my number one strategy to this day of enhancing. I'm working with a client now that's an international client. I started with this client with one 45-minute lunch and learn, Asia. One 45-minute lunch and learn. They got me off a site that I'm on. You know how they have these sites where you can, speaker sites that I have a profile mm-hmm. on a couple different sites. They found me on the site. I came in, I did that one workshop. It is now two years later, and I have done five-figure contracts with this company over eight different countries in the world. Wow from a 45 minute lunch and learn because of that debrief. That one debrief did it all. Gateway offering with a built-in up With a built-in debrief. So that means when you schedule, when the date gateway is going to happen, you schedule the debrief at the same time. Okay. The customer views it as a package, right? It's a value added that for, for what they pay for the gateway, they're also going to get this 
whatever you want to call it. I call it a debrief. You could call it a strategy session, a follow-up coaching session, whatever you want to call it. You build that in. You have to add some value. So you can't just go in that debrief and start selling. You have to give them some tips, (laughs) some advisory, but then you also are establishing your expert authority when you go in there. They're looking to you as the expert. And so you say, I heard this, this, and this, and it can turn into a co-creation. What do you still need for your people to be prepared here? And you listen for what they still need and fit your services yeah. <laughs> into what they still need, but you have to be prepared for that. You have to be, pre- if, if you have somebody in a debrief that wants to go straight to contracting because they're so convinced, you can't be like, well, I got to go and think about how much I'm going to charge for it. No, you have to be ready yes. to talk about that money right there to sign that. If they want to pull out that contract, honey, I'm ready. I am ready whenever they right are. So there. That's the key. You have to find out for whatever you do and whatever your, uh, you know, whatever you do and you want to work with other businesses, other large corporations, you have to, one, know what is the pain point that they are experiencing that you can satisfy and you have to figure out a gateway. You rarely have I gone into an organization and I'm just starting with $75,000 consultant. No, they don't know you. They don't know you. They don't know your output, but what is a small thing? $10,000 or less, I would say, depending on what kind of work you do that can get in short-term commitment, um, a first date, if you will, that will allow you to prove yourself and then have an opportunity to upsell to the bigger money. This is so rich, Laura. This is so give it away all my secrets today, y'all. Yes, game changers. Like I really hope y'all are taking notes. See, Laura, don't come to play. I knew I brought the right person in to talk about this stuff. She just gave you the secret to ultimately creating your own opportunity, um, furthering business relationships. When you get a client, don't just think it's a date, you know, and then we're done. Like she's talking about courting this client, Mm -hmm. turning it into a marriage. You have to prove value to them for them to take you on for that longer term investment. And it's easier to get a client who's already paid you to pay you again than it is to get a brand new client. It's just, it's just, so if you, my strategy is really, how can I, um, infuse some longevity into my current clients? How can I increase the the return from this work I've done instead of having to prospect for new people every other day? Mm -hmm. Um, And if you really get to know your client and really position yourself for service, I love money like anybody else, but I'm truly looking at how I can serve these people. What happens is that once people can see the expertise you bring to the table, after that project is over, if you can position yourself as a trusted advisor, then there are always more projects. Mm-hmm. If you can get to that advisor role, which is a relationship building exercise. At what point can you make yourself available for brainstorming for just, you know, uh, particularly with corporations, just, I want to run some ideas by you. When a client says that to me, that lets me know I'm in an advisor role with them, mm-hmm. which means work will continue to come if you can get to that advisor role. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you about that. So if a client says, hey, Laura, let me run some ideas past you. Are you hitting them with the invoice? Or are you looking at that as a bridge opportunity for potentially more services? Absolutely looking at that as a bridge opportunity. Now, I will say this as a caveat. If you are working, you have to manage this, right? I work only B2B now. 
Um, my clients are paying me a nice amount of money. So if they want to ask a couple of ideas, it would be foolish of me for every uh, question or email they have to send them an invoice. But I still, of course, practice boundaries. I'm not available 24-7 to my clients. And as much as possible, I try to expand my contract amounts by embedding in consulting hours into the contract. So I'm usually getting paid for this stuff anyway. But if let's say outside of that, I do make myself available. Now, the caveat I would say, if you primarily work B to C and your clients are paying you smaller amounts of money, you really have to manage that because it's a time thing. So B to B, I have large clients. I usually only work with two to three clients a year. So my time, my money is not necessarily based on hours it's based on a contract that that we of work is going to happen over a year or two or three but if you're an entrepreneur that your work is based directly on hours and i would encourage you to infuse some other ways of making money as well you have to uh, manage that because you can't go have coffee with everybody and let them pick your brain you can't do that so it's levels to it depends on who your client is and it depends on your time. If your money is tied to an hour, then that's not a wise strategy for you. If your money is tied to a larger project and there is room that you know that this project can be renewed or expanded, then you can think about it as a, um, you know, a client engagement. Uh, mm-hmm. opportunity. I love what you said about in my contract, my initial contract, I've already built in consulting time, mm-hmm. um, being very smart when you are creating these contracts to just say that no contract just goes black and white. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always going to be gray areas where clients need more support and not on the back end or into it being like, oh, I charge them bare minimum. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm at a loss, but going into it with the service mindset saying, okay, this is what it takes for me to get it done, but what else will it take for me to serve at a higher level mm-hmm. and, you know, packaging it up so that when it does come to those times, the clients need more support. You as the expert have already anticipated for that as opposed to, you know, hitting them with extra invoices exactly. and making it look choppy. Cause in my experience as a service, uh, based business owner, people much, much more prefer package rates than those hourly rates. Yeah. And I mean, you could just make yourself a standard practice of building in like 15% overhead of hours or something like that, which is usually what I do. And I mean, you always can spend stuff from a marketing angle. So I've written into proposals like, and this, you know, flat fee, <laughs> this flat fee means we don't have to nickel and dime our clients, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> then really you built in the extra time they're going to call you into right. the contract, but you can use marketing messaging to say, hey, we'll be available when you need us. We're agile. You know, agile is a new word in the B2B work. Uh, we're agile. We'll be able to pivot quickly with you when, you know, all of that kind of stuff. If you prepared yourself accordingly with that extra overhead in, you can be flexible and your clients really, they really value that. They really respect that. And yes. it builds goodwill with them for the future. Yes. Um, Malik Till had a quote Um, that I read several years ago and it stuck with me. And she said, there are so many extra steps to excellence. And that just really resonates with me, even in the context of what we're talking about now, because when you're looking about serving somebody from a long-term basis, you you get in there, you take your shoes off, you get comfortable, you just, you get in the work with them. And Mm -hmm. so you want to make sure that you are 
well compensated overall and that you're considering that going into it so that you can really serve your clients in the best way possible in that relationship. Um, So, I mean, you introduced the pivot, so let's talk about it because Mm -hmm. there was a stage in your journey where you absolutely did work B2C and you worked with small business owners and that was the era that I actually was introduced to you um, through Dream Builders Mastermind Circle. I was a part of your cohort. You were my coach and you had uniquely infused the work that you were doing as a social worker with the business work and talking about helping people from, you know, the head work and the heart work. Um, Both of those, in addition to running a successful Mm -hmm. business, um, which many of your um, principles that you taught really talked about like the why and the the psychology behind things. So I just thought that it was a brilliant marrying of, you know, where you had been and from a professional, from educational, but also just, you know, being raised in that and now serving this community of, you know, entrepreneurs that are looking to get their businesses off the ground. So how did you um, essentially kind of pivot into, to that space and I know this was just kind of the first pivot and you spiraled into some other stuff but let's talk about that okay so you know working with the university a lot of my work was about um, workforce development career development and helping organizations do that so I had to speak a lot and do a lot of trainings Um, a lot of times I was not training the end user it was a train the trainer. So I might be speaking to city employees who were in the workforce development office. How are they running their programs? These kind of things. So I always had, when I did those trainings, at the end of the training, you know, a couple of people, what I call a church finger, you know, when you come up, you get that <laughs> finger up, you kind of whispering with your head down. And they would say, yeah, I know this is for the work that we're doing with such and such, but I'm thinking about pivoting in my career. Can you help me? You know, that kind of thing. So I started doing, while I was still at the university, I started doing really what started as kind of life and career coaching initially. That's what it was, more like career coaching. But the common denominator, and this is like the pain of your clients will really focus your work. Really what it was, and I wasn't, I wasn't working with entry level. My clients were like mid-level managers, people who had some skin in the game, mostly women of color, who were now saying this was not working or this was not for this season of their life, the work they were doing. So we would do these coaching sessions, and I was always focused on the internal work because I believe that you know confidence and, and um, your wellness and all of that is connected to your work and how effective you can be in your work and as a servant leader and all of that kind of stuff. So we will be doing this, and, and the common denominators that start to pull up is that these people that didn't necessarily want to do something different, the environments that they were in were a little toxic or was not fully serving them or they couldn't fully share their gifts in that way. So that organically over about, let's say, a period of two years, start to shift from people saying, can you help me figure out my next pivot as a, in a career stance to more about, well, could I consult and do this for myself? Mm-hmm. Could I, uh, you know, offer this? And I've been making this money for this company. Could I offer for somebody else? And so that's how we got to shift. And at that time, I had been doing consulting for quite a bit of time had run a couple of different businesses, some side hustles and some real businesses. So I started to guide my clients into how they can consult and how they could do some, use their skills for their own kind of income generation. And that's how I transitioned into small business work. Dream Builders was really 
um, kind of uh, my, my love for so many uh-huh. years. <laughs> Dream Builders was a mastermind group that combined coaching as well as, um, you know, business strategy and business coaching for women entrepreneurs, primarily African-American women entrepreneurs. So um, I always, what I saw in working with women entrepreneurs, and I did that work for about six years working with women entrepreneurs, is that a lot of times the challenges that we were facing in growing our businesses, some of it was strategy, but overwhelmingly it wasn't strategy. It was confidence. It was um, internal things. It was fear. It was um, negative and toxic narratives that we had from different traumas we experienced in life um, that were keeping us from really stepping out and offering the skills you know, usually the folks I work with had some years of expertise under their belt. So it wasn't even about expertise. It was about the mindset challenges on top of actual business strategy, which we know skills does not equate, you know, having a business. Mm-hmm. So that's how we met. Yes. Um, and, and Asia was in, I think, the 2014 mm-hmm. group of dream builders. I still have my binders. <laughs> Yay. Um, but it was really about um, some teaching, but it was about community too. Business yes. strategy, coaching, and community. Um, you know, as people are feeling isolated or dealing with anxieties or their own, you know, shortcomings and building their business, normalizing that and letting them know they're not alone and, and building an accountability in a community of women that were trying to do the same thing. Yeah, that's that's huge. And um, well, thank you for just all the foundation that you laid um, during that time because entrepreneurship, it's a journey. Yeah. Um, I don't really feel like there's a point where you ever feel like you've arrived because by the time you have gotten to the place that you want it to be, there's already a new destination in sight. And so you are um, always a moving target, but um, you are right. It, it was so much of, you know, the, the life coaching blended with the business strategy and community. And there are still, you know, people that um, I met during my time in Dream Builders, um, even some that were not a part of the cohort that I was a part of um, because you created spaces intentionally that we all got to come together that, you know, I'm still communicating with, still working with. And so um, that relational aspect carried right on into your um, entrepreneurial endeavors. And I think that was dope. So you pivoted there, but then you pivoted out. And so what was that for you? And and what was that kind of turning point um, along your journey where you just felt like uh, this isn't the right fit? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm a big believer in seasons for things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like all the work that I do is deeply tied to who I am as a person and my purpose in the world, which is really around teaching and then around building community. Everything that I've mentioned has been connected to teaching strategy and community, like mm-hmm. every thing that I've done. Um, and so part of it was a functional kind of shift that needed to happen. I talked about relocating here to Georgia and that so much of my marketing and things before was based on relations. And now here I am in a new community where I don't have those relationships. And I had not fully done my due diligence to build up the online presence that I needed to have to, to pivot more smoothly in that way. So there were some functional challenges to it. But then on top of that, I started to feel like, I don't know quite what it, what it was, because to this day, the work I did with Women Entrepreneurs is probably my most beloved work that I have done in my life. But I know when it's time for me to move on from something, uh, when I start to feel, when it doesn't start, it starts to feel like work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't um, 
some of the joy and passion of it starts to go away. Um, another level of anxiety or stress comes with it that was not at it before. Um, and that might sound um, immature to say, well, you're going to have some anxiety and stress with your work. Absolutely. No, when it becomes it, foil. Yeah. And when you're choosing it, like this is not a job that I was, it was my own business. So when you're choosing something, part of that is because of the lightness and the joy and the passion you want to feel doing that thing. So I started to feel that go away. And my relocation here was a shift for me in a number of ways, uh, spiritually in some ways, in my, um, you know, in my marriage. It was just a lot of transformation happening in my life. And I think the season for that was over as I was transitioning to something else. Yeah. But I overstayed my welcome. And this is the thing. When, when you know your season is up for somebody and if you're a spiritual person and you have gotten the instruction, you know, from your creator that that season is up, and you continue to stay there, that's disobedience. And you yeah. will feel the toil of that thing. So the very last year that Tell I did Dream Builders, <laughs> the very last year Dream Builders, I knew that I should have cut Dream Builders off probably the year before. But I felt, I felt like, it was felt like a breakup to me. I was emotionally conflicted because I had loved this thing. I had got to connect with so many women. I saw them flourishing and to know that I played a small part in that. I was emotionally connected to the work. Um, and I lingered on, well, I'm going to do it for one more year. That last year, I did this work for six years. That last year was the first time in six years that I had to send folks to collections that I had, I mean, I had never experienced that in six years, had never experienced it. I had to send three people to collection. Um, and it just became so, oh, the way that I was feeling about it was not what I wanted to do. So that was my final, okay, let me stop being disobedient and transition. I had been doing the leadership work for years because my, my undergraduate was in that work in organizational development. I had been doing it for years on the side, just moonlighting if somebody would ask me, hey, Laura, yeah. can you consult with us on this from relationships here and there, just moonlighting on the side. And then I decided to put pivot fully into that and really build an agency, really build a consulting agency. Um, and that was just in 2018 when I made that transition. And, and I think I'm going to stay here for a little bit. Stay here for yeah. a little while. <laughs> okay, so, so there's one caveat you know we got to go back and talk yeah. about, and that's Savvy Solopreneurs. Yes, <laughs> Savvy Solopreneurs. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I know. So Savvy, Savvy Solopreneur was in the working with women entrepreneur phase. My dear friend and one of my besties today, Summer Alexander, was my business partner in that. And so, you know, collaboration is critical, you all. Like, it's enough for us, all of us to eat out here. I believe that. I wrote a book on it with Summer about partnership and the power in that. But Summer was also a business coach like me. So doing the same kind of work. We were both at a vendor fair. I'll never forget it. Uh, we both had a table. Roland Martin was speaking. It was at the House of Hope in Chicago. And it was, a, I mean, it was easily, easily over 100 entrepreneurs there, maybe over 200 entrepreneurs that had booths there. We were both there with booths. And Roland Martin said, uh, he was the keynote speaker. So it was like a conference and a small business fair. Um, and he said, um, you know, I speak at entrepreneurial events all over the country. And he said, the thing that I speak about at the, the expos and conferences for big business like Fortune 100, Fortune 500 is mergers and acquisitions. He said, I never get to speak on that at these um, uh, events for small businesses. 
And he, he started looking around and it was a couple of, I mean, it's everybody from service and consulting, like what we did to, you know, catering to some jewelry makers and all this kind of stuff. So he looked over and he pointed out two booths. He said, you right there, you make jewelry, you right there, you make jewelry. He said, I bet you all are not making as much money as you could because to make money in a real product-based business, it's about wholesale buying. The more you can buy, the cheaper your cost. He said, if you guys merge your resources, you will make more money together than either one of you all are making apart. And he drove that point home for, you know, that's part of his talk, how small businesses can collaborate. So if you can imagine me and her in this big expo, we knew each other just in the entrepreneurial networking world, but never really sat down and had a conversation. A little light went up over her head, a little light went up over my head. And we started chit-chatting there and said, well, let's get together at a Panera and just see maybe if there's some things we could do together. And we did do that. We shut the Panera down. They had to put us out. They were vacuuming and we were still coming <laughs> up with ideas. But we ended up doing an a e-course together called Savvy Solopreneur, the Savvy Solopreneur System. It was a four-week e-course yeah. for small business owners. And it was so much joy to just, I brought the best of my stuff. She brought the best of her stuff. And to facilitate that for a group of women entrepreneurs online. And it was so fun that we did several things together from that. We um, went in on some corporate projects together. And then here we are years later and we're like best friends now. So that was a blessing. That that initiative alone, just with the partnership, brought in about six figures outside of what we was doing together. Um, and it was through partnership. We wouldn't have got uh, done that work or made that extra money if we hadn't collaborated together. So yeah. that was during my small business coach years. I love everything about this. <laughs> At a vendor, uh, have vendor stations at an event. Girl, let's get together. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's go make six figures plus together. Just on like the that. side. Just on, Just the, on side. the side. <laughs> like relationships. Yeah, the relationships are everything. Oh, we so all can eat. We all can eat. We absolutely all can eat. Um, but I think that really being confident in that requires you to be confident in who you are Mm -hmm. because I think it's really hard for um, someone who doesn't really know their place to feel comfortable collaborating with someone else, especially in the same space, because Mm -hmm. it's this feeling of like, Oh, like they're going to overshadow me or, or we're, competing for the same piece of the puzzle. Um, And that's why even in my work in the brand development space, I focus a lot on brand identity and communication strategy to help people go beyond the title. Yeah, The title is great. Great. I'm a personal brand strategist. Great. That's cute. But there's also a thousand other people with the same titles. But if you dig into each one of our businesses, we're actually very different. And the audiences that we serve and our approach and our specialty and our backgrounds and our experience. And so you really have to do that self-work even to be in a place to thrive in business. I mean, I heard you say multiple times through our conversation today, you know, I'm a teacher. I've been a teacher since the beginning. You're like, everything I do is, you know, about, um, you know, community. And you mentioned two other things. um, And you had such a certainty about yourself when you said those things so that when there is a opportunity to explain or when there's opportunity to be created, you know who you are going into that. And mm-hmm. I believe that that contributes to your success. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And knowing your why. And I recommend like actually doing some activities around that. Great book, Find Your Why by Simon Sinek. He's a thought leader in uh in the leadership field. Um, but I went through that exercise. I had always had personal mission statements. That's what we used to call them back in the day. But now people talk about it as your why or your purpose. But he has a great framework. Um, and some exercises, because that feels so um, ambiguous, right? To know your purpose or your why. He has some really great exercises in that book, Find Your Why, that really helped me to even clarify mine down to a statement. And, and it's something that's with you all the time. You look back over your life at these different experiences, what people have always come to you for, things you've naturally excelled and gravitated to, um, you know, any, every single job I've ever had, it had a training component with a group of people. Even when I was a therapist, most of my work was in groups, was small group work, you know, small group work. Um, so you, you see those things. And if you can tie those things to your unique contributions that you give to the world, even outside of your business, outside, you, you'll see yourself giving it in your family and your friendships, because that's just who you are. When you can connect to that thing and then make some money from that too. Yeah. Baby, it don't even feel like work. <laughs> I love that. So advice, advice to um, people who are in the process of discovering their purpose. Well, that that's first. Um, mm-hmm. And then people who want to move into the lane of monetization because that's not, that doesn't happen in the same breath. Um, you do have to have a clear vision and establish yourself before you then do monetize it. So what advice for those individuals? Yeah. So for the first part and and kind of finding your purpose, as I said, I recommend, you know, doing some of those structured activities, uh, because some people can just journal and do some reflection and some praying and meditation and they can pull that together. Other folks are not. They need some prompts. They need some steps to how, what am I thinking about? What am I, you know, processing to come up with this? So I recommend some of those tools. And one I love is Find Your Why, as I said, by Simon Sinek. Um, it's a book, but it has exercises in it. And it will walk you through some steps to reflect on ways you have always brought value. Mm-hmm. even as a child uh it's always there with you so it's not about finding your why it's about uncovering it exposing it unearthing it that kind of thing because it's within you it's who you are it's your unique contributions to the world i think when you can identify that um any pivots that you make professionally as an entrepreneur are more seamless for you because even I've talked about tons of things that I've done, the functions of the work in these different settings feel the same to me. Mm-hmm. Different audience, maybe a different angle, maybe a different location. Um, but the, the function, the you know, function. Yeah, the, the core piece of it um, is the same. You know, being a strategist, when I was a nonprofit program developer, they would say, here, you got $250,000 for this grant. Here are the outcomes we want develop the program and you have to take something conceptual and make it a concrete reality. Same thing in small business. When you have a client and you're working with them and they want to launch a program, but they just got these pieces, you're taking a concept and you're making it concrete. So it's the same type of functions that you're doing, but if you're not clear on the skill sets and the, and the value that you bring from a functional or from a purpose standpoint, then it will be very difficult for you to monetize that in the mm-hmm. first place. Um, 
So that's one thing. Do some work, do some self-assessment, do some self-reflection work, use some prompts to help you do some journaling. If you're a spiritual person, do some praying and some meditation about that. Get into your spiritual text and uncover some of those things about yourself. So you got to do some work, self-work first. And that's what I call the heart work, that kind of stuff. Now, as far as monetizing it, a skill set, a passion, even a purpose does not equate a business, right? Um, you could be very good at something, but there are so many things you have to be able to package that in a way that it um, satisfies, you know, someone's desire or it solves a problem for somebody. So the first step is figuring out what are the skill sets that you have. And then the second steps are being able to kind of match that, if you will, to how can those things solve a problem and for whom? I've talked about a different a couple of different things in my journey, I was solving a lot of different problems for a lot of different people, but with my same skill sets. So you might, if you're not making money already, it might be a number of things you can do. But the first is you need to connect it to what a problem could be, but then you need to do some research about that thing. Mm -hmm. People think because they have a skill set that people are just going to buy it. No. I've heard people when I was doing business coaching, people would say, oh, I got this idea and nobody is doing it. Well, it could be that somebody tried to do it before and it wasn't a market for it, so then it stopped. Or it could be that you're really first to market. It's rarely anything in this day and age that you're first to market, though, for unless you're doing some new technology or something. Absolutely. Everything has been done before. So you have to find your angle. But monetizing it, you have to figure out how to package that thing into something that either solves a problem or on the flip side of that, um, uh, you know, covers a desire, you know, satisfies a desire that someone wants. And then you have to really study the people that you think you're going to sell to. Mm -hmm. You have to know them intimately. You have to um, know what are their pains, what are their worries, what's keeping them up at night. And you can do that a number of ways. You can do from what we call secondary information that already exists. Mm -hmm. You can research. If you have anybody who has a, who's a college student Ask them to let you log in on their library web to the <laughs> business databases. Um, get into the business databases and you can get the market. You know, there's a ton of journals and databases with the market information. You can download those reports and study them. But primary, you can talk to people. That's how you need to do it. You need to interview folks. You need to ask questions. If you're going to come up with a product, you need to get a prototype. You need to have people test that thing. You have to talk to people. You cannot just jump out and think because you think it's a good idea, people are going to spend their money on it. Mm -hmm. And you cannot only ask your family and friends. We're talking about people who would spend money. So, of course, your mama think it's a great idea because she want her baby to succeed. However, <laughs> if your mama ain't in the target market, don't ask your mama. <laughs> very, very true. Yeah. Um, oof, that, that I see often when people do get upset about friends and family and it's like your people are going to support your first launch because they're proud of you, but they're yeah. not your repeat customers. You have to spread and your wings. You have to go out yeah. and you have to, you have to find your people. Yeah. Um, I am just thrilled <laughs> at you being a guest and everything that you shared. So thank you. I do you. have. No, thank you. <laughs> I do have um, one more kind of question okay. that I, I want to talk about that is kind of unrelated to this. Whenever I have people on the podcast that are married, I love to just know the dynamic yeah. of 
marriage and, and balancing it with career and also, you know, just being purpose partners, you know, does that apply? Does your partner have to support you, you know, or do you feel like you can flourish and purpose on your own? So just kind of talk to yeah. me about Mr. Knights and some oh, of the dynamics between you guys. I love it. <laughs> so my husband and I are high school sweethearts. First of all, we've been together since I was 17 years old. I have been with him for more than half of my life. So we grew up together. Um, so I would say your partner absolutely has to support your purpose because it's going to cause um, a level of stress that will stifle your creativity and that will also um, really uh, mess with your mental health and your, your uh, mental wellness. Uh, so do they have to like join in and work in the business with you? Not necessarily, but there has to be some understanding about, um, this business, the value that you want it to bring uh, to your family, to your future legacy. And they have to be on board with that in some way. And you might need to get some outside help for that. You have to develop some boundaries too. You know, there's this culture and a lot of um, startup entrepreneurs are, you know, hustle hard and all this kind of stuff. Been there, done that. I get it. But you have to have some boundaries because you have to feed your, um, relationship and especially if you're going to try to be a life partner with somebody and marry somebody you have to feed that thing uh at an even more rigorous level than you feed your business and that can seem like impossible because the business can take everything from you so um yeah you know my husband is we've had our ups and downs my husband um now he is working for a company but he was an entrepreneur for some time my my husband was also a professional musician that traveled all over the world and was gone a lot of time too that was kind of our pre-kid days um, and that some of that takes a toll too, right? So there is a, a level of support, but I think that the key to it, and this is just from a marriage perspective, I think the key to longevity for my husband and I will celebrate 17 years of marriage this year yes. is about is building a friendship, really. Because think about some of the people, if you have those best friends that have been your friends since y'all was five years old. If you think about the ups and downs, y'all might have fell out, you might have had an issue, but there's something about you, that friendship and you knowing that that person got your back, that you always come on back. You always come on back. So that has been kind of our crutch and really cultivating our friendship because you ain't going to feel lovey-dovey all the time. <laughs> you ain't going to feel romantic, snuggled up. Sometimes you're going to be like, get off me. I want nobody else. Leave me alone. <laughs> but that friendship, will really sustain you um, through difficult times, whether that's health things that come up, whether that's, um, you know, financial things, whatever the case, that friendship will really sustain you and allow you all to keep meeting each other at your different level. Because, of course, the people we were at 17 years old are not the people we were at 22 when we got married and are not the people that we are now about to be 40 years old. So um, that evolution and the respect that comes with the friendship that we have for each other gives allows us to give each other space to kind of find that new us and then introduce introduce them to you <laughs> mm -hmm. what does it look like to support a partner in their purpose yeah well i think when i think about me and my husband part of it looks like um affirming them in their purpose because sometimes you know in your purpose walk 
especially when you have gone through valleys, you can sometimes doubt that thing. You can sometimes doubt your efficacy or your efficiency or your effectiveness in something. We can be our own worst critic. So there's been times that for me, my husband has had to remind me of who I am sometimes, and I've had to do the same for him. So they need to be able to affirm you. So that means they need to know the purpose and support you because if they don't, how can they, what language, what words can they use to affirm you and your identity if they don't know you? Um, another thing is they have to hold you accountable. So there's times where I'm like, you playing small homeboy. You, this is not who you are. And my husband has to check me too. Like, what you scared for girl? Why you scared? You know, (laughs) you scared? Don't be scared. You know, so they have to hold you accountable. Right. And then ideally, you know, your goals are aligned. So when I set my revenue goals and then pull from that, what I want my salary to be, My husband is in that conversation because that spills over to what our financial goals are for the family. So I'm coming to the table where here's what my salary going to be for the year. Here's what I'm aiming for, for the revenue so I can raise my salary. And he bringing his to the table. Here's a salary. And then this was a debt we wanted to pay off. We're trying to buy a house. So it's accountability. It's the shared goal setting. Maybe not the goals for the business, but the goals from the business are going to trickle into your household goals. Um, and I think affirming you, you know, you need that cheerleader. You need that person that has your back who will remind you of what you said the vision was when you, you can't see the vision in this particular moment um, and encourage you to keep going for it. That's so, so good. Okay, y'all. Y'all done came up today. <laughs> y'all done got life coaching. Y'all done got business coaching. Y'all done got marriage coaching. This is the Laura E. Night. Forget her name. Please let us know where we can connect with you on the social media that you don't like to be on for business. Well, I'm on, <laughs> you can get me on Instagram, Lori Knights. Um, I, most of my business uh, social media is on LinkedIn because all my clients are corporations. So that's why I connect with them uh, more so. Um, Facebook, I pretty much just use for personal. So LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, if you want to connect personally, Laura E. Knights on everything. Beautiful. And I will put in the show notes about Knight's Consulting Group and where people can find out more about that. Thank you again, Laura. This has been the bomb. Oh, thank you so much. This was a nice break for my day. So I appreciate this. I love it. Okay, y'all. Laura left no stone unturned with that one. From her entrepreneurial journey stemming from her teen years to getting an opportunity to work for a nonprofit to change her professional trajectory and even moving into the space of coaching small business owners and realizing that that wasn't her path to where she is today. And of course, let's not forget that great advice for your spouse and your partner to help them become more in tune with your purpose and for you to become more in tune with theirs. So I hope that you guys absolutely enjoyed that interview. Next week, we're going to be continuing in the vein of relationship building, having another one of my good friends that's going to come in and talk about another aspect of relationship building, networking. So stay tuned for episode 23 of Purpose Potential Podcast. Until next time. This episode is brought to you by The Content House, a full-service media and project management agency, aka the group that has me feeling real official for Purpose Potential Podcast. 
The Content House offers a plethora of services for entrepreneurs, small business owners, and creatives to level up in their content and media game. Whether you're talking about photography, videography, audio, or video podcast recording, logo design, website design, they offer the works in a state-of-the-art facility in South Holland, Illinois. I encourage you guys to check them out over at thecontenthousechicago.com. I want to hear from you. Take a screenshot of this podcast to let me know that you're listening. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Asia Corinne. You can also download the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and YouTube. Use the hashtag Purpose Potential Podcast. Also, if you have questions or comments, email me at hello at purposepotentialpodcast.com. Allow me to reintroduce myself just one more time. My name is Asia Corinne McGee, and I'm on assignment to help God's kingdom ambassadors to maximize their impact. I'll see you next week on Purpose Potential Podcast.